What do editors want? It's a question that many creative writers have asked themselves or more likely muttered dejectedly after a frustrating rejection. I'm Rachel Thompson, author and literary magazine editor and your podcast host. The Lit Mag Love podcast grew out of my course by the same name, and I continue to seek out answers to this question of what editors want by going right to the source. I bring you interviews and insights about how to improve and publish your writing. In this episode of the Lit Mag Love podcast, I interview Jessica Johns, the new managing editor at Room Magazine. And we love having roomies on the podcast. I, I love having them on the podcast as a Room Collective member myself, but also because it's a great opportunity for us to show the different people who are working behind the scenes at Room. We are a varied collective, and so I often tell people who are submitting their work to Room to submit again if they get no response to it, because the chances of the same person reading their work twice is very slim. And we have people from all different communities and all different aesthetic tastes who are part of the collective. In this episode, I also speak with Jessica about a couple events that are presented by Room Magazine, just like this podcast is. The events are Indigenous Brilliance and the Growing Room Festival, and both of these take place on traditional Coast Salish land in Vancouver, British Columbia. Jessica Johns is a Nahia Anti and member of Sucker Creek First Nation in Treaty 8 Territory in northern Alberta, and she's currently living, working, and learning on the traditional territory of the Musqueam Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. She is the new managing editor at Room and the former poetry editor for Prism International and is co-organizer of the Indigenous Brilliance Reading Series in Vancouver. So welcome to the Lit Mag Love podcast, Jessica Johns. Hi, hello. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So I want to launch right into something you said in an interview that sharing stories, even ones you've heard a million times before, is an act of love. It builds community no matter where you are, if it's across pages, in a bookstore, or someone's kitchen. I'm wondering, can you tell us about the stories you heard in the kitchen, the books you read growing up, and how they led you to writing community? Well, I think the important part for that, or the, the thing that I was getting to when I said that, is that the idea of like repeating stories to someone for me that is how i understood storytelling when i grew up or as i was growing up um because whenever i get together with my family to this day um but whenever we got together as a family when i was younger uh my aunties and my uncles and my papa and my parents you know we're all sitting around and chatting together and you know, eating together, whatever we're doing. And they're always telling stories and they're always telling stories about their, um, as we do about them growing up, their past and all that kind of stuff. And I was always hearing the same stories, but I was always hearing it just slightly different every time. So depending on like, if, uh, the first time I heard it, I heard it from my auntie. And then like the, the most recent time I heard it, I hear it from my mom. There's always like some thing different and changed and that for me I think is this idea that storytelling and stories are living and they're always changing is 
um, I didn't realize until probably very recently at 30 years old um, that that's something that has really stayed subconsciously kind of important to me because when I started doing my MFA and when I started like writing seriously as in like for an audience or to be published or whatever, I kept trying to force myself into thinking that these stories had to be static, that I had to complete a poem or complete a uh, piece of writing and then it was done. And as soon as I published it, that was, that's the way it had to be forever. And um, I only recently just been like, I just don't believe that to be true. And that has also come through people like Louise Bernice Half, who is this wonderful Cree poet who, um, you know, she wrote a book of poetry and a bunch of poetry like earlier on in her life. And like through her Cree language learning journey, she's like republished those poems, but with instead or like with more Cree words that she knows. So like they're the same poems, but they're different again. And I just think that's a really wonderful thing to do. And I think it's a really, uh, for me, it seems like a more tender way of treating my work. If I write and publish something and then later on I'm like, uh, want to change it a little bit or something else has come up, even if it is already out in the world, like I feel more engaged. I, I feel continuously engaged with it, I guess. Um, so I guess that's how that has informed um, story and storytelling. In terms of books that I read growing up, I read everything. Um, but in particular, I just, I loved like magical stories and fantasy um, and things like that. Like I loved Harry Potter and I loved, um, I really loved this series when I was growing up called the Sword of Truth series. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I think maybe they might be really bad now that I think back on them. But at the time I was just like, obsessed with these magical worlds and this sword that was magical and yeah that that's really stayed with me I think nice yeah I haven't heard of it but I can see myself at that age being totally down with reading <laughs> the sort of truth <laughs> yeah I love what you say about that stories are living and that they're always changing and it just it does bring to mind poets who read from their books at readings but are changing the words as they're reading along as well too i've always kind of loved that there's something kind of impermanent about the writing even even when it's in a book mm -hmm. so i know you've worked at a few lit mags and we were talking about your experience at prism before and, and now you're managing editor with room and I, I wonder what love you find there in that community and what you love most about these spaces for writers um, I think something that I've really, uh, the thing that I enjoy most about the actual work has been just at its very core, just working one-on-one -on -one with writers, um, especially um, writers that very, very emerging. So if uh, it was perhaps their first publication ever or like one of their first, I really loved that because it's really exciting to me working with somebody who is really excited about getting their work out there. And it has been a really big also learning curve for me because I've worked with editors before and I've worked with folks before who as an editor might try and change 
or there were certain changes or suggestions I were trying to make to my work that didn't feel genuine to what the work was. Um, and I think when you are an early stage writer, you default to perhaps like listening to those voices because like you automatically assume that they know better and that they're like in quotations more experienced. And I think there's a balance between, of course, like listening to people who have been writing for a very long time or have been in the industry a very long time and have those expertise. Like I don't want to take away from that at all. But I also think it's a really big benefit to also listen to yourself and to um, whatever the work was, what it is. And so for me as an editor, I felt that a, a really big, I guess, pull or um, responsibility to, to really deeply engage with whatever work I was working on with a writer. So trying very hard if I felt something should be changed, like really asking myself, like, do I think this should be changed because it benefits the work and what it's doing? Or am I trying to, to push it based on like my preference for uh, what I read or any other biases I might have or whatever. So, you know, I love that experience of, of learning through that. And, you know, for that, that was like a really, it was just really generous and really wonderful for uh, writers to allow me to learn that through working with them. Like, I feel like it was, uh, that kind of relationship is quite reciprocal. Like, I don't like to think about it as a top-down sort of relationship, although a lot of the time I think it seems that way. But, like, I learned just as much, if not more. So I really love that aspect of it, is just working with other writers and um, doing that kind of one-on-one -on -one stuff. That, for me, has been... I think the most rewarding part because there's a lot of uh, parts about working for literary magazines and working for like nonprofits that are a lot harder. Yeah, I love hearing about the joy you take in helping really bring their vision to life and even help them tell their stories for the first time too. Yeah, because editing in itself is a very, like, I think before I got into editing, for sure, I definitely thought that if you are a writer and you can just, it's just synonymous with being an editor and that's just not true. <laughs> like they're two very different art forms. I think editing is an art form and I've, I've met and I've worked with some amazing editors, like these people that just have an eye that I just deeply, deeply admire. Sean Robinson is one of them. He was my editor for Rahila's Ghost Press, my chapbook. Um, and just the way he could see poems was just like, I was like, this is phenomenal. Molly Cross Blanchard, who is now the poetry editor for Prism, um, you know, she helped me a lot when I was, uh, she was the circulation editor when I was the poetry editor. And she actually, yeah, she helped me so much and, and could really engage with uh, work in a way that you know, I thought was really special. Um, Alicia Elliott has, um, I've, I've seen her work through stuff. And then and I'm just like, this is just a really amazing, it's just very, it's definitely separate to writing and takes a different kind of, uh, takes a different kind of eye. And yeah, it was a, a big, I don't, I don't know if this is the same for everybody. I don't, I don't know if everybody just knows this from the beginning that they're different but for me it was a realization like I was like oh these are different talents 
so it's just for me it's been learning something completely new like I didn't know how to do it and I don't know necessarily that I'm uh, you know, I have a lot more learning to do, but I, I think I definitely have a lot more appreciation and uh, respect for the people who do it all the time and are really good at it. Yeah, I, I love what you say about, and I think it's important what you say about how sometimes newer writers will look at editors as like, oh, they know, you know, they know best maybe. And so maybe make changes that don't necessarily feel true to them, but it's easy to kind of outsource that truth to someone that feels like an expert. So it's just great. I, I love hearing this from you and I've heard it from a lot of editors who come on the show. And these are the people I think that emerging writers really want to work with are the ones who are going to really honor your vision as a writer and help you bring out the best of what's true to you and to, true to your writing and not impose some kind of aesthetic on you. Yeah. And I think I, I learned that a lot through not just the, cause I, I haven't actually i mean i've I, now i've been published in a couple of magazines but uh at the time when i started at prism i hadn't so i didn't really necessarily know that through um or realize that through actual work but it was through other you know institutional experiences with um writing like being in an mfa where we were in uh, i was in workshops with established and wonderful writers who I would get feedback and think this must be true. I must have to do this because they are, you know, whoever they are and I'm nobody. And I think the realization formed after that process of being like, eventually being like, you know, that might not necessarily be true. That's one opinion. And again, it's holding both the idea that they're um, established and talented and they know what they're talking about but also you know could they also be making these suggestions based off of not you know knowing where I'm coming from and because it's really wonderful to be able to take on suggestions and to think deeply about okay would this be better or not but there was a point where I think I was listening to what everybody was saying and it made my stuff really boring. Um, so, you know, sanitizing your work for uh, the suggestions everyone is giving to you, I think takes your voice away. Yeah, I've heard that before from editors too, say they can kind of tell pieces that have gone through the MFA program because mm. they have that kind of you know, almost uniformity. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I listened to your interview with Michael Lemiski on Painting Couch Feminist and was so moved by how deeply reciprocity is the focus of all you do. And, and I've seen that already in, in your approach to the managing editor role at Room. And it's not just in literature, but in, in raising the living ingredients of kombucha, the mother or sobe. <laughs> all of that was like amazing to listen to. And I, I recommend checking out that episode of Painting Couch Feminist, another podcast from Room. And I know... For myself as a prairie raised person, it reminded me of like things like sourdough starter that families passed on yeah. to one another on the prairies. And I'm not going to ask you to describe the fermentation process because people can listen to Fainting Couch Feminists for that. But I also like how you likened it to the way First Nation treaties should work. And what I want to ask, the question in all of this is about finding that balance. You have a lot of clarity about the work we do, which bodes 
so well for how, how you're going to lead room into this next stage. And it's tough to find the right balance in, of give and take. And something that I learned myself when I was more involved in the day-to-day of the organization of room. So when resources are so tight in organizations and those for those laboring in lit, like how, how can we keep it reciprocal? That's a really good question as well, Rachel, because we've we've talked before about the labor of doing what we do, you know, working for a literary magazine and, you know, a lot of the um, emotional labor involved in that, a lot of, you know, the, the physical labor or, um, you know, un, unpaid labor or all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it is something I think deeply about um, all the time. <laughs> um, I <laughs> talked about it on the episode there with Micah. I also uh, recently wrote a piece in a an upcoming uh, magazine called Critical Booch, which is talking exactly about that, about um, kombucha making and it, likening it to how treaties were always intended to work and how the Canadian state has effectively fucked that up. But it's something I think about all the time and it's not something I think, even though I think about it all the time, it's not necessarily something I always do right. So the basis of what this what I get to and what I come back to all the time is that treaty is relationship and Chelsea Vowell talks about this in her book um, Indigenous Rights uh, that this is a paraphrase quote but she says treaty or relationships aren't something you sign and then you just walk away from and never look back on relationships you continuously return to. You change it depending on what uh, changes in circumstance, changes in anything. You have to be nourishing it and you have to be uh, shifting because relationships are constantly shifting. You know, with kombucha, it's that things like the change in weather or the change in where you're putting it depends on like how it will brew and you always have to be being careful of that. And so for me, when I'm thinking about my position now as a managing editor or whatever position I've been in before, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about how this relationship is in so many different ways. So how is this, you know, my relationship to the staff and volunteers that ensure that Room magazine continues to exist because they are the backbone so like how am I supporting them and giving to them so they can give back meaning have the capacity and have the support to be doing the amazing work that they do my relationship to the community like who we are creating this magazine for and putting on a festival for Uh, How am I being responsible to them? How am I being responsible as a managing editor of a magazine that operates on unceded stone lands? How am I being responsible to the host nations where we're operating and like holding events and holding like we, we, we do it everywhere and our contributors are everywhere and our volunteers are everywhere. But like, this is where the majority of us are and this is where I am. So it's like, I'm thinking a lot about my relationship to these lands and the host nations here. And again, it's something that is always to be returned to. So I might think, or I might 
be like doing something in a particular way and then that might have to be shifted or changed um, and that also depends on my own labor capacity and abilities I love I love doing what I do and I love being in the position that I'm in and thinking about these relationships and these responsibilities and I love doing this work and if I'm doing it to a point that this industry is really hard to be in at the end of the day as much uh, love and care that you can give and receive um, it's still living in a world of camlet where uh, it's very very much still built on you know white supremacy and heteropatriarchy and capitalism and colonialism and these structures are still very much at play everywhere so it's still difficult and you know, at the end of the day, I do want to care for myself in a meaningful way. So I have to balance. And this is like a long time learning. Like this is like three years of, again, like, like I've said, I haven't always done this well. Like it's all been a learning experience. So I've had to learn through very hard ways that like, I need to maybe cut back on volunteering or you know maybe I need to spend some time like taking care of myself rather than other people and and I, I think for a while it was feeling as though if I did that that I wasn't engaging in reciprocity that if I wasn't giving that meant that I wasn't doing enough and I think I had to relearn that reciprocity sometimes means taking care of myself and allowing myself to be taken care of by my kin and my community members and you know just uh thinking about it in a way that thinking about myself empathetically as well and treating myself with compassion is also um an aspect of reciprocity that perhaps at least for me anyways was i was overlooking for a while one thing you said to me um, when we first spoke, you're talking about how you're very careful about the relationships you get into. And it sounds to me that, I mean, some of that experience probably informs that. And it's really um, just something I admire and something that stuck with me. I'm like, okay, be very careful about the relationships that you get into because it's true. There's sort of points where you're, you can feel like you're overstretched and the reciprocity isn't there. But if you can kind of front end some of that decision-making, hopefully... Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's not to say that because there's all different kinds of relationships. Like, I guess it's like not just like careful about getting into the relationship, but about just being careful about or being mindful or being intentional about when you enter in those relationships, how uh, clear you are about what kind of relationship that is. So, you know, there are some relationships that I'm in that don't require as much um, constant care or there are relationships where I perhaps get more. It's just like it, it depends on, and this isn't just, you know, relationships with people. These are all kinds of relationships. If you, for me, if I agree to do something or if I take on a, uh, take on a responsibility or I don't know, if I accept to do something it's like I have a responsibility and a relationship to that now because also this was another thing was like when I first started writing was like I was accepting anything and everything that 
was thrown at me. So like if someone was like, can you host this? And can you moderate this? And can you do this? And I feel like for a while I was doing it all because I was like, I have to say yes because otherwise no one's going to ask me anymore. And then I'll fade into oblivion and no one will ever know who I am anymore. <laughs> and, then, and also I was like, you know, deeply honored and felt like, oh, these people are asking me. So I have to, not I have to, but I feel, you know, I should or something. And so it was also being careful about that in the end. And now I'm, I'm careful because I'm like, well, first of all, it's not, you know, is it within my capacity to take on? And also, you know, am I entering into it in the right way? Can I give this a good amount of attention? And can I give this a good amount of care, this piece of writing or this event? Or am I, you know, going into it as an empty shell because I have nothing left to give? Like, that's not good for them. And it's not good for me. So it's also, yeah, being careful about entering into those things, um, just being mindful of yourself, I guess. Nice. Yeah. I think within the Canlet work field, I think there's a lot of people that need to, that would be helpful for them for, to think of it that way. And I know that it, feel, it does feel like a lot of pressure when you're starting off as a writer to do all the things and be in all the places. And there are so many opportunities that requires a lot of you, but maybe aren't as reciprocal. Yeah. Or just like, and also... I guess. Also thinking about, for me, it's not even that they're not necessarily reciprocal. Like they might be very extremely supportive or um, helpful in every possible way. And I just might be like, I, it took me a while to learn this through just like kind of gritting my teeth and enduring a lot of discomfort, not discomfort, enduring a lot of like I guess discomfort is the word I'm going to use right now because, you know, I would be invited to, to read or um, host things because I'm, uh, I mean, I'm an introvert, but I'm very, I'm very like, I'm get along with people well and easily. And like, I'm a social person. So I think it might be um, surprising to people sometimes when I'm like, Oh no, I like doing these things back to back. For example, like, I had a serving job for uh, a decade. So like as soon as I turned 18 to, I stopped um, working in the bar last year. And if I had like, when I was working full time through um, undergrad, you know, I was working four or five shifts a week. And so that was a very, very, it required me to be interacting with people constantly and it would just take me days and days to recover from that. Like I would just be absolutely drained and exhausted. And it was a really unhealthy field for me to be in, not just because of that, but because of various other ways that, and reasons like people just treating people in hospitality and in the service industry, like they're sub people or not people at all. But then coming into a, uh, industry where you know like I host events and I and I do things where I seem very comfortable and so I think people got the idea that it was something that I really love to do which I do but when I was accepting to do or you know doing a bunch a week or a bunch of months and then the other days the like four days leading up to it and then the five days after it I'm like a shell of a human and like can't do anything um, it became clear to me after 
a while of enduring that I was like, these people, this event, this whatever can give me this relationship can give me the most amount of support. They can be so lovely and so wonderful, but it won't matter in the end because of the person I am. I know that I need to be mindful of like how often I'm doing this just because of me. So, you know, being aware of your own boundaries and capacities before you enter in something is also, yeah, I think it was, um, Lindsay Nixon tweeted one time that, you know, kinship is uh, boundaries as well. And so like, you know, putting up those boundaries of, you know, this is a different context, but knowing your own boundaries and... And just knowing yourself too, like the, I'm mm-hmm. an and this is draining for me. So Yeah. And then people respecting that and being like, that's yeah. cool, whatever. Or that I can't go to every, I would love to go to every event that happens in Vancouver and I because I came from Edmonton where things don't happen all the time when I first got here I was like I'm going to absolutely everything and I did and I was exhausted and I didn't I couldn't do the things I needed to do like work or you know write or whatever so like even I would love to go to all absolutely all the things and eventually having to be like you know, I, I love you. I want to support you, but also I need to be thinking about my, like, I have to think about like the two weeks I have coming up when I'm planning what I'm doing in a weekend, you know, just to be like, okay, I have a really big day on Monday. So I need to <laughs> like, can I be out in public for four hours? You know, is a big question for me. Yeah. Yeah. I ask myself the same questions all the time. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure a lot of writers can relate to that, actually. So I wanted to talk specifically about something you did found and that, that you've put, you've dedicated your energy to and created this relationship with Indigenous Brilliance. It's a reading series that you and your co-founders say is an incredibly important time to be centering Indigenous stories and to be shining the spotlight on the brilliance that exists in our communities. Wondering if you can tell our listeners who might not be familiar with the series a little bit more about it. Yeah, um, absolutely. So it was actually founded by Patricia Massey and Yonina Curtin. And it started with a conversation between them and they wanted to, they weren't sure what it would look like, but they wanted something that specifically Indigenous women and two-spirit queer Indigenous artists out there creating and, you know, making in the world. And they brought that to room And I was just part of the collective at the time. And uh, I heard about it. And I was just immediately just like, you know, whatever, however I can be involved in this, I would really love to be. Um, And at that point, I had the capacity to take on uh, more responsibility. And they, we basically, the three of us kind of sat down and, and thought about how this might look and yeah, started a reading series out of it. And that was two years ago now just a little over and um since then Yonina actually modeled she did a great job in modeling uh this exactly what we're talking about boundaries and capacity and boundary setting and she was like for her health and for her like own comfort uh you know she and she's been you know, doing volunteer and advocacy work for years and years and years. And so she had to take a step back eventually. And we had had um, Jay Simpson 
uh, as a feature at one of the events previously. And so I um, texted them and they were really excited about being on board as well. So then we started hosting with along with Patricia Massey and organizing everything. And then most recently for over last year's or this, this past year's uh, growing room festival, we knew. Um, so again, this is like all been learning process. So it was all, we basically were just like, okay, we know this is going to be a lot of work because it was like a day long event. We had vendors, we had a really uh, huge, um, we were planning a really big thing for the festival. And so we were like, okay, let's do this you know, anticipating capacity and anticipating workloads thing that we've been talking about. And so then we invited uh, Emily Dundas Oak to come on and uh, sort of like, I guess, you know, be like assistant sort of help us. And um, since then she's taken, she's continued on with us and taken a greater role in all of our, like, if you look at our Instagram, like how beautiful it is, that's all Emily <laughs> and organizing the, she's the lead in all the, the backend organizing stuff, especially since I've transitioned to taking on uh, the managing editor role and the responsibilities associated with that. And then very recently, because we're planning uh, youth, uh, we call it a retreat. So it's kind of just like uh, youth retreat weekend where we have like workshops offered and um, a bunch of cool stuff in um, early September. And we're also in the process of creating our first chapbook for, um, from our contributors for the first couple of years. And because we have those two projects, as well as planning for next year's festival again, um, we uh, very recently brought on Another person is like kind of a, our new Emily. Um, her name is Carmela and she's absolutely brilliant and wonderful. And so, you know, just in two and a half, um, very short years, uh, we're doing a lot of cool stuff and it has really taken shape. And it's been such a source of like of anything, this has been, it's been such a source of like love and like a lot of healing for me. Because um, it's been an opportunity for me to connect with so many uh, Indigenous women and two-spirit and queer like people in the community and um, build relationships from that and collaborations and partnerships. And Jay and I and Patricia have been thinking very deeply from the start, basically just about how this series is going to be able to be like continued for the future. So we have very intentionally set it up in a way that allows for and we've set the precedent with bringing on Emily and then bringing on Car Carmela. Like we very intentionally tried to establish a way for this series to continue and to be supportive and as much of a, a loving and healing space for us as it is for like future generations of um, hosts and organizers to take it on. So we kind of built it in a way to to be like passed on to future people because it's always really important I think to create spaces that just open up for more space for other people and not just ourselves and that's something that we think of very deeply. I love that. I want to ask you a question about 
just this kind of the state of literary writing and just wondering about what transitional space do you think that we're in right now with literary writing and what changes to the literary landscape do you find most exciting? I mean, I don't know. Like I, I definitely over the past like three years, there's been a lot more focus and attention given to this brilliance of indigenous writers a lot of publications, a lot of awards. And that seemed to me, because there's always been, um, because we've had brilliant Indigenous storytellers in the literary world for a long time, like they've, they've always existed, that's been happening and they've been here. The shift, I think, has been in maybe uh, people in, hmm, how do I word this? I think the shift has been not necessarily that they're suddenly there all of a sudden, but like the shift has been to the spotlight being on them now. And that has been really wonderful to see that excellence and that brilliance really being more prominently featured in the Canadian literary world, I guess. And also those voices being featured in the way they want to be featured. Uh, Cause I think that, Canadian literature and the people in the gatekeeping positions were interested in featuring only one kind of story for a long time. And that was uh, one of trauma and one of grief and sadness. And that's not to say that that's not valuable. And those voices who are writing those things aren't valuable. But I think that there was definitely a lot of, uh, a lot of the time, I think, white people really wanted to just make sure that was the only story that was being told. And the shift that I've seen has just been like, it's a cacophony of voices. Now it's stories of all different kinds. It's stories of grief and trauma. Yes. And also joy and also love and also, you know, humor also some like, you know, funny and, Um, also beauty and also academic and so the shift I've seen is like more towards like varied story and I hope that that continues I don't know I am very wary of like how the literary world works (laughs) and whoever is at the helm helms and the decisions they're making like why they're doing them it just I don't know like I don't know if I'm saying this right, but I, I guess I just feel like... Yeah, I hear you. It's like, we can't just be like, oh, pat ourselves on the back and everything is fixed and we've got this wonderful cacophony of voices. And it seems to me that maybe some of the change is coming from people, more people working behind the scenes. Yes. And- yeah. So I was just going to say that as well. I think that there are a lot more, there are more Indigenous folks and like more uh, people of color and trans folks and queer folks like working as editors and as in, you know, publishing houses and in positions where they're like, we've been seeing, here's the stories we've been seeing forever and know are brilliant. And, you know, so that's why we're seeing that. But that's again, like I was saying before, the majority is still very much, you know, white. It's still very, um, cisgendered it's still you know based in capital and where they think they're gonna 
be the stories that they think they're going to get them the most money or whatever, however they decide things. So that, that still exists. So that's where my wariness comes in. But I do think that it will be kept up. And I, by having more people in positions to having, yeah, having more people, uh, BIPOC people and queer and trans folks in the positions to be making decisions that will reflect how we know society is, which isn't just, you know, white, cisgendered, able-bodied, highly privileged people. And our stories aren't for them. And those are generally the best and most brilliant ones, the ones that aren't centered on those optics. So I hope we keep seeing stuff like that. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jessica, for sharing your Lit Mag love with us today. I'm very conscious and, and grateful, too, for the, you know, the cautious optimism. It's like, okay, things are, are good. You know, they're, they're getting better, but we also have to, I guess, continue to do the work to make them better and, and establish them more permanently versus a certain blip in the timeline kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm just wary of, like, doing, I think, exactly what you said, which is, just this, like, look at all these, look at all these, indi- for example, Indigenous voices that we've featured can lit. Let's pat ourselves on the back and continue being shitty as we've always been because we've done this now. Like, we're done, let's move on, you know? Like, I am just weary of that effect and rather than something sustainable, um, which means having people in positions to make those sustainable decisions. Yeah. It's optimism, but yes, it's careful. Well, thanks. Thanks again for sharing all your lip mag love with us today, Jessica. And did you want to talk a bit about what's coming up for room or anything you want people to know about that's on the horizon when it comes to Sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. We have a wonderful hair issue coming out, our hair-themed issue, which was edited by none other than the wonderful and amazing Shelley Knight. Um, So that's going to be out in March. Uh, We have the sports issue as well as our unthemed issue, which is going to be like a double issue, uh, which is coming out in December. And also in March, we have set the dates for our next Growing Room Festival, the 2020 Growing Room Literary and Arts Festival, which is March 11th to 15th. Um, I'm currently accepting pitches for workshops, panels, and artists for the festival until September 15th. And... Yeah, and the festival, it's my first time as festival director, so I'm going to be probably an anxious mess from now until then, um, and that's exciting too. <laughs> well, I can't, yeah, I can't wait to see what comes of Growing Room and just work, working with you and seeing all the amazing initiatives that are happening at Room too. It's just... Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. We also have our last Indigenous Brilliance event of the year will be November 23rd. And then our one after that will be during the Growing Room Festival. And that will probably be similar to last year and that it's going to be like a big, bad, amazing event. So check us out, come to those events, support us and uh, the amazing people, you know, showing their brilliance. 
Thank you. <laughs> I'm Thank you so recording. much for having me also. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Now, I loved talking with Jessica Johns about community and about relationships. I find that she always has such a great take on getting in the right relationship, on checking in with yourself and with the agreements that you're binding yourself to by saying that you're going to do something or work with someone. And I like how she turned it to really be about you and your own boundaries. And I think a lot of writers listening, especially those who are introverts with limited energy for doing things out and about with people, it's a really good check in for all of us to think about how we use our energy, especially when a lot of that energy then takes away from our ability to write. If we're draining ourselves, saying yes to so many different things, getting in the wrong relationships because we haven't really thought through our involvement and how and how we want to relate with people, then this is a great thing to do for writers. And another thing that Jessica reminded me of that is so crucial is about the core relationship between the editor and the writer and how sometimes editors get that wrong and they think that they're going to impose some aesthetic on a writer's submission or they don't quite know how to, again, relate. It goes back to relationships with the writer. And so you can hear working with an editor like Jessica, and she is upcoming editing an issue with Room, as I am as well. And so there are a few of us we rotate editorial, so you'll see all the upcoming issues at roommagazine.com. But if you have the honor and the privilege of being able to work with Jessica, you will have in her someone who champions your writing and your vision for your writing and works closely with you in a really respectful way in, in, in building that good relationship. So I hope that you'll send in your work to Room to our upcoming issues. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, literature, art, and feminism since 1975, and the Lit Mag Love course, an online course to get smart, fearless, and published with lots of help from me. Sound editing for the episode is done by Micah Lemiski, and I'm your host, Rachel Thompson. If you want to give us some love in the form of a review wherever you get your podcast, we would love that, and it really helps other writers discover the podcast. You can find us online at litmaglovepodcast.com or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LitMagLove. Thanks for writing and reading literature, and thanks for listening to LitMagLove. Love.